Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron, you're up this week. What have you brought to the table today? Uh, I'm bringing an interview uh between Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Rachel Gadsden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Dr. Taylor is a, a well-renowned scholar who has written books called Race for Profit, uh, which is about the real estate industry and black home ownership, uh, and then From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, yeah. which makes some cl- connections between the history of black liberation movements uh, and the current movements for um, Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives and, and different uh, spaces in that movement. Uh, she's also a contributor at The New Yorker and has been writing columns there uh, regularly throughout the last year or so. Yeah. Um, so she's doing some really great work. Yeah. Uh, and then Rachel Gadsden is a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University in the program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship. Uh, and so this interview is actually part of a series that publicbooks.org did that considers reading, learning, and writing as politics. Yeah. Um, so these graduate students choose a public scholar. Uh, who they admire, and they arrange for an interview. And so this is just, I think, a really great conversation where Dr. Taylor shares um, a lot. Yeah. Um, But some specific pieces are uh, her story of how she got to where she is. Um, You know, she points out some organizing that's happening around the country uh, around housing justice specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also she critiques the Academy uh, and the the Democratic Party Ooh, yeah. uh, by way of <laughs> comparing them to uh, some things that like right wing activists have been doing to infu- well influence yeah. um, the the uh, Republican Party. So there's a lot of good stuff in here that I feel a lot of resonance with in her how she made her analysis and stuff. Yeah, same for me. Absolutely. And I, I mean, talk about someone you admire. Good for you, Rachel. Like right? this. Um, this was a really great and fascinating conversation uh, between the two of them. And so I'm really glad you found it glad we get to talk about it, uh, particularly because Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is just incredible, right? Like you mentioned that she's this renowned scholar and author and columnist. Um, She's also a professor at Princeton University in their African-American studies department. Mm -hmm. And she is this incredible activist as well, right? And Mm so I think she's really just this multifaceted and accomplished person who, you know, can really, you know, hang her hat really well in terms of sort of all that she's given and all that she's done for the fight for black lives and and sort of black liberation. And so um, this interview was everything, right? Because I think it was really raw to me, right? I don't think Dr. Taylor held back in so many ways, right? Like she she talked about the, the impacts of institutional and systemic racism in this country, right? Um, you mentioned this, right? She talked about like the state of our current political climate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I loved sort of how she talked about the fact that we've got millionaires and billionaires in Congress and, and, and running this country, but so many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, right? Yeah. And and particularly when you think about uh, the housing justice, as you mentioned, right? Like so many Americans can't afford housing, right? Mm-hmm. Real adequate, proper housing, right? Um, I also appreciate that she didn't hold back in sharing parts of her 
personal life with us, right? In our in our in her career trajectory. Because I think those like personal anecdotes and and the sharing of stories and the how and the why of particularly in the case of Dr. Taylor, right, in this article um, or this conversation, right, like how and why she's drawn to this work and why it's important to her. Because I think that's so important for those of us who care about and are engaged in this kind of work to to hear and to and to understand and to be um, inspired by. So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I love this. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think as we go through, we'll probably pull out some different um, specifics um, that we, we really probably resonated with and yeah. talk about those. So one of the things that stuck out to me uh, that I want to highlight is Dr. Taylor's story. Yeah. Um, so she told the story about how she would go to class from 8 a.m. to 8.50 a.m. Mm-hmm. and then get to work by 9 because uh, I guess work was like a mile away from yeah. the campus she was um, taking classes at um, to finish a bachelor's degree and then use her lunch break to go to class. And then go to class in the evenings from six to nine. Uh, and so she did this for 16 months because she wanted to finish her degree and wanted to get out of the job that she was in, uh, but also was driven by wanting to learn why Chicago was so segregated. Yes. Um, and so that's a lot of work to do while maintaining a full time job. Yes. Um, so I admire that and I'm exhausted thinking about it. Um, <laughs> yes. I know we both did something similar, like in grad school, mm-hmm. um, but that you know, feels different. Uh, they're related, but yeah. feels different because our positions were tied to being in grad school. So, yeah. you know, ultimately there was a lot of built in flexibility about, oh, yeah, well, Aaron's in class because he's supposed to go to class. Right. The, the point of him being here and doing this job is so he can get a degree. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, just <laughs> it's a it's a lot to wrap my mind around um, in this moment. Um, but you know, from there got the bachelor's degree and then went to grad school and then ultimately got a doctorate. And as you said, is now a professor at Princeton. Yeah. Um, so it's just like a, a kind of a remarkable, um, story of, of finding, um, what you want to do, um, in a non-traditional way and yeah. just, just kind of going for it and being like laser focused in that, yeah. right. In that pursuit. Right. Yeah. I was exhausted too reading that. And, yeah. you know, I, uh, you mentioned sort of she was doing this to get out of this job that she had mm-hmm. right at the time. She was a, what a tenant advocate um, yeah. with uh, the Illinois tenants union. Right. Um, which actually she shared how she actually really enjoyed that job a whole lot, but um, her boss was apparently just this outright racist. Right. And she tells this story about um, this really awful interaction with her, with her boss. And so, you yeah. know, that's certainly difficult for anybody and particularly uh, as a black woman, to deal with and, and work alongside every single day. So I think uh, I admire and respect her pursuing that and getting her bachelor's degree and, and to propel her to, to new opportunities and to sort of get out of that toxic space. Um, I, I, I appreciate that for sure. And I'm mm-hmm. sure others can too. Right. And as you said, right, that took her to grad school and really, you know, as you said, she, she, dived into really wanting to study Chicago and particularly like its history with and, and present day struggles with housing segregation that was taking place there and, and overall sort of that housing crisis in the city. Right. And I think mm-hmm. it really sounds like that was sort of a transformative and pivotal time for her career. Right. Yeah. Well, and one of the things she points out there too, is that she was in grad school during like the, the, the housing um, and financial crisis in like 2008. Yeah. Um, but that that housing crisis hit black folks like two to three years before that. Yeah. Um, 
and so she was she was doing that work before it like sort of hit everywhere yeah you know it hit white folks Oof. and so then it hit the media and was sort of more widespread and you see the financial collapse of these people who made terrible investments and whatnot so but her research interests seems to really have begun in housing justice which also aligns yeah. with like what she was doing while she was getting her bachelor's absolutely too, right yeah. so um yeah, she mentions that she started to research contract buying in Chicago where black people had to get their homes on installment plans rather than mm -hmm. traditional mortgages. Um, so there were a lot more um, ways that you could be exploited in that system. Yep. Um, she actually interviewed Clyde Ross, um, who is one of the people featured in uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Their Case for Reparations. Um, and so sort of had done that before that article came out and was on the cusp of doing a lot of this kind of... Um, stuff right um yeah and so she also then sort of shifts and talks about some things in the present day um and the story about mothers seizing uh, uh yeah properties from the philadelphia housing authority um and just kind of take them over um because the city was just sitting on them in the hopes that they could flip them for a profit yeah to a developer at a later date um so I, you know and that's something that's happening more recently and it's happening in more places than philly yeah. um but it's you know infuriating on mm -hmm. one part and in one part awe-inspiring because those moms moved to the city right they created the the what they needed um yep it wasn't being provided and they, yeah. they did it yeah. yeah and so the rage for me comes from um this push for cities and governments and, and uh to be um operating like businesses yeah. rather than providing services that address the needs of the community right and you know ultimately government's not really supposed to operate like a business hmm. right there, there's not oh. not everything in a government's supposed to operate at a profit right yeah. um services sometimes need to operate at a quote-unquote loss yeah. because they're a service to the community yeah right so the decisions aren't always supposed to be driven by profit um, so it's infuriating to think that Philadelphia was just letting some publicly owned houses, right? Taxpayer owned houses sit vacant so they could reap some reward later on yeah. when, you know, citizens in, in the city needed a place to live. And they, they were like, well, now we're going to make a buck later. Yeah. Right. So infuriating is a great word. Yeah. It was. And I, you know, personally, I was <laughs> particularly infuriated to see that that was happening in Philly because I have a very special place in my heart for Philadelphia. So I went to college there. But, you know, as you sort of alluded to, right, uh, Dr. Taylor talked about how this isn't just happening in Philly or wasn't just happening at the time in Philly. Oh. She referenced sort of similar stories and and the associated sort of activism happening in cities like Oakland and Los Angeles and, and Kansas City as well. So I think it's important that we know that these sorts of housing injustices are happening across the country. Um, to get us to, to understand that and to know that that's happening to real people in real cities. Uh, and I think like connected to that in this interview was uh, Rachel and Dr. Taylor's conversation about property value and, and home ownership, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The fact that across the board and I, and I can't remember what study she, she cited, but there was a particular study that she cited about this, that homes in black majority neighborhoods are valued at something like $156 million less than homes in white majority neighborhoods, yeah, right? Which is just a ridiculous sort of concept and thing to wrap my head around for a country like ours. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're right, and I love sort of your take on it, right? Like this all really does speak to this issue or idea that governments shouldn't operate like businesses, right? Like that 
should not be the goal or the way in which our society operates, I think. And so mm-hmm. um, that's certainly one piece of it. I think as a, a further element to this or ex- uh, expansion on this, right? Like Dr. Taylor was also talking about all of that in this interview in reference to actually a question that Rachel had asked her about how the pandemic has only made the national housing crisis in this country worse, right? Yeah. So like Rachel referenced how before COVID, we already had housing shortages and an incredibly high rental market. Oh, I know that for real. Uh, and and stagnant wages, right? And I would even go so far as to say that we also have an issue in this country with minimum wage, right? And we're not paying people oh, yeah fair wages for work, right? And so, of course, how can I afford the incredibly high rent that's at places when I'm not making minimum, not even making minimum wage, right? And so, you know, and then back to her question, you introduce the pandemic into all of that. And it's really sort of troublesome to sort of see that this is the um, the ways in which our cities and our governments are operating and how we're not taking care of our people in our communities, Um and it's, I think this issue of housing justice is, it for me, is such a critical piece of our fight for, for social justice and, and collective mm-hmm. liberation, right? Yeah, because when you have um, a roof over your head, a mm. lot of other issues mm. um, become easier to address Yes, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, it takes, so. takes some of that worry. There's still so much to worry about, but the yeah. idea of having a roof and, and sort of a warm place to be and to lay your head. My goodness. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the other things that's happening is uh, in this, in this article is that, you know, I love is connecting history and theory to what's happening right now. All right. Come on. Right. Uh, and so I feel like it's a common theme on the show. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about it quite a bit. Um, so when Dr. Taylor starts talking about Stokely Carmichael coining institutional racism as yeah. a term, uh, and then defining it as racism embedded in governing institutions and private institutions of capital. Mm. Um, you know, I was, my, my interest was piqued further. Yeah. Um, and so that definition therefore gives black folks and other, um, I think, marginalized, oppressed people uh, the right to demand repair, right, through mm-hmm. programs and through mm-hmm. services that address the harm that's been caused. Um, and so, you know, that that's so key, especially when you think about the housing crises that we're facing now yep. and that that stat you gave about the different valuations of homes. Mm. How much of that, I'm guessing probably quite a bit, mm. is from uh, a, a sort of a remnant of redlining, right? Uh, yeah. Right. Like sort of specific government disinvestment in black neighborhoods, neighborhoods yeah. um, that has led that to where it is now. Right. Yep. Um, so, you know, I love seeing that theory and stuff come together um, and then highlighting how it's good, um, you know, specifically the Stokely Carmichael thing and uh, institutional racism, systemic racism becoming more of a um, uh, term, a more popular term yes, uh, culturally um, and how that's good for our overall analysis and collective understanding that racism is institutional, right? Mm-hmm. It is systemic. Yes. Um, so, and that's a big reason why there's backlash from the right because nobody wants to address these larger harms um, because it's going to be really expensive to address stuff like healthcare and housing and education. Uh, And that money is, you know, mostly going to get sent to and funneled to folks of color, which, you know, also the right would have a problem with. Doesn't want. Um, You know, and so this brings me to this quote from the interview. Um, 
That's why the resistance to structural analyses like Carmichael's was sharply focused on issues of personal responsibility and redirecting the conversation away from institutions and structures back to families, behavior, and culture, right? So if the right can redefine the issues as one that belongs to the outcomes, belong to the individuals, then they don't have to address the roots of the problem, right? So then the problems continue. and evolve. Um, and that's where the reactions from the right have been for decades now and, yeah. you know, continue to be, um, now. Right. Um, so it, it's very interesting, especially to think about the policies that like presidents started to implement. And like, you know, you think back to some of the famous sound bites of, um, like Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. um, around personal responsibility. And, you know, he coined, um, or, you know, speechwriter somebody coined yeah. welfare queen as an example mm-hmm. um and so thinking like there's a lot of shift in the individual and in and you know lionizing the individual as the the uh beginning and end yes of these social issues and that's a i think that's been a consistent um cultural um movement from the right to have us focus more on the individual. And so I think that's why she highlights that it's super important that even if we can't name uh, specific examples, right, like popularly of um, systemic or institutional racism, the fact that it's in our lexicon again more popularly is um, important important because it's going to let us push back on some of this individualized stuff. Absolutely. I think that's so key, this individualized stuff. I also want to say, uh, as a funny aside, when you said Ronald Reagan, it took everything in me not to make the Ted Lasso joke. Uh, the actor. The actor. <laughs> you Doc brown me. Uh, um, sorry, folks, we're having a serious conversation here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I think that's one of the most, this was one of the most important and profound parts of this interview, right? And I love the sort of work you just did to talk about the individual, right? And that has been sort of, they've been laser focused in sort of trying to blame this on the individual. And again, to our earlier conversation not thinking about sort of the humanity of our communities right and 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 what is in the best interest of our of our communities right Mm -hmm. that's where we should be focused not defining the issue as you say to the individual yeah yeah so um and you know i uh, this conversation about institutional and systemic racism like we've had lots of conversations here about that and consumed Absolutely. lots of media that have have shared the ways that, th- that these things are at the core of, of so many of our problems and our conditions that exist uh, in this country. So, yeah, I think this was uh, I think that in particular was uh, another critical takeaway from yeah. this interview for for sure. And, you know, at the at the end of the conversation, Rachel sort of mentioned how the and I think connected to this mentioned the emergence of mutual aid systems, right? And organizations, yeah. right? And how they've been so amazing in trying to help make real impactful on the ground change for people, right? To to make people's lives better and, you know, to to do what we're supposed to be doing here in terms of taking care of one another, right? Because time and time again, we've seen such inability from our government. And as you sort of mentioned, when we talk about the right, maybe just sort of a, a lack of even desire or care to do that right yeah um absolutely um you know this uh sort of i think that's so important to think about how folks responded to the crisis of the pandemic by yeah 
reaching out to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of people did, yeah. right? Because um, I think that that's a that's a, a cultural shift um, from how from that individualized thing. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's so key to um, think about and and maybe focus on of how, like how do we how do we capture this and yeah. and and continue to encourage it. Yes. Um, right. Um, so shifting us a little bit, one of the, um, pieces of this, uh, conversation that they had was this comparison to the right and the left. And I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, in the respective political parties or lack thereof, Mm. of each of those (laughs) sort of, uh, (laughs) sides, um, was really interesting because the right has, I think we've talked about this quite a bit on the show in different ways. Um, but the way that she talks about it, like really crystallized it for me. Um, the rights coalesced around this idea of a culture war mm-hmm. and, you know, reducing taxes. And that's really been their overarching narrative for decades. Um, you know, building the war machine, uh, reducing taxes on the wealthy, uh, and then, you know, culture war stuff. Uh, and so the GOP has mostly aligned itself with that because that's where the right has been. Um, and the left is essentially, we're st- stuck with the Democratic Party, which mostly doesn't align with what people actually want, whether they're on the yeah. left or just, you know, people, um, the general public, right? I mean, this week it was revealed that Nancy Pelosi thought that a wealth tax uh, was a publicity stunt mm. in the the bill that they're considering build back better. Um, so she was more aligned with Mansion than a majority of this country, which has polled like a wealth tax is polled pretty popularly with. Um, so I also appreciated in this conversation tying together racism and capitalism too, yeah. um, because she says, uh, and I quote: "Social dislocation means people don't know where they fit. Uh, Im- immigration is something that gets the blame, uh, and it's." It's totally racist, and it is about class and economics, right? It's both at the same time. Race and class are entwined in this country, and the constant efforts to separate the two create confusion because you can't separate them, right? Especially when you think about this, um, you know. And this is this is my thought here. When we think about the narrative around Trump supporters and saying that it's either all about race or it's all about class, when it's absolutely about both. Particularly, when we think about immigration and people blaming uh, immigration for the lack of jobs and whatnot, right? So, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it was difficult not to wince when you said some of those names, right? Like Pelosi and 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 Manchin and Trump, right? Like, uh, I think. Yeah, when you consider all of this, it's really just not difficult to see how our elected officials and our government really just aren't serving us in the ways that they should be. And so, you know, the other thing that they referenced in this conversation was talking about that insurrection that happened, right, January Mm -hmm. 6th at the Capitol, right? And 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 that incident and and sort of that that terrorist attack, really, because that's what it was, is I think just another perfect example of how and why separating race and class is troublesome right right and and that that work being done to try to separate race and class is just one of the many reasons why that insurrection happened so yeah yeah there's so much sort of real life connection to all of this yeah there's so much bundled up in in all of this right yeah absolutely all right, this feels like a good spot to shift into uh, and talk about application. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, my application is a little abstract here again. Mm. Um, 
But I think understanding how these politics outside of electoral politics in particular uh, and outside of the parties influence the parties, like uh-huh. how that works. Yeah. I think understanding that is super important because we have to see these patterns. Yes. And I think I'm especially drawn to understanding the reactionary stuff on the right and how and why we don't see similar stuff on the left. Mm. Right. The right has had so many people over the years push them further right uh, very publicly. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, right. So Rush Limbaugh and mm-hmm. Bill O'Reilly and mm-hmm. Sean Hannity and mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson oh boy. and lots more who have pushed the envelope of what's an acceptable political position for decades. Yeah. Um, and then they've gathered these large audiences um, and then influenced the GOP to adopt these kinds of positions because then sort of the voters yep. appreciate these positions in some way because they attach them like, you know, they've taken them on because they listen to these people. Yeah. Um, you know, now we have people chanting at a NASCAR race, oh. um, and U.S. senators are using it in their tweets, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and then members of the House are creating videos where they are murdering their political opponents. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah. And you know, I know I've talked about this stuff before in the past, but I feel like it's always relevant to try oh, yeah. to understand. It's happening this, stuff. this week, like yeah. it's happening now. Absolutely, right. it's relevant. Yeah. Um. And it's just not happening the same way on the left, mm-hmm. right? And people mm-hmm. try to make these equivalencies that I think are false. Um, we don't have establishment people getting pushed to the left because they're watching CNN or reading the New York Times because those outlets aren't actually leftist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, uh. they get labeled that way by the right as a way to sort of destabilize them and and uh, reduce their reputation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so we're led to believe that they are left, but, you know, they're not. So they're I think my, my application here is to use some of the ways that Dr. Taylor, Dr. Taylor is analyzing the world um, and trying to bring that critique into, you know, our own work, our own day-to-day kind yeah. of stuff and, and understanding what's going on. And I don't know how to translate that into doing something about it, but, yeah. you know. No, but it's a first step, I guess. I think that's great application, my man. I I wouldn't call that abstract at all because I think that is particularly as we think about, oh, my gosh, the like horrific things we're seeing, uh, you know, folks tweet about right in these videos that you reference right like of folks murdering their political opponents like that stuff's happening right now um and it's deplorable isn't even strong enough of a word to describe that and and what's going on so i i think you're picking up on exactly what dr taylor was putting down here in terms of what is and what is not happening in our in our two parties and so i i think that's a key piece of application to take away from this as it relates to what's happening right now in our society I, I think another piece of maybe connected application is this idea that Dr. Taylor presented at the end of the interview around making academic work accessible, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, I think it's so important that the work that Dr. Taylor and others are doing and publishing on liberation movements and, you know, even broader than that and connected to that, the, the stuff we're talking about and, and you know, uh, reading about and absorbing around abolition, right? And sort of broader social justice issues, right? Like what is being written about the real tangible solutions to some of the ills of our society and the ways in which we could make our society better? Like that needs to be more accessible and understood by all of us, right? I think yeah. that's important work that needs to continue to happen, right? And so I'm glad she she referenced that. I think that was one of the last questions that Rachel asked her about in this interview. Yeah, absolutely. 
um, yeah, she talks about the ways that, um, uh, again, I think this individual individualistic stuff like leads to, um, in some ways things becoming less accessible because you have to participate, right? Like to be a thinker, you have to participate in growing an audience so that you can then, um, find funding from, right. And so, um, yeah. All right. Um, well, so for homework, let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, I think one of my pieces of homework is to reread how we get free. Mm. Um, so that's a book that Dr. Taylor edited about the Combahee, uh, river collective statement, um, which is where the term identity politics was coined. Uh, and this was, that book was published by Haymarket. Uh, and so this is pulled from the webpage about it. The Combahee River Collective, a path-breaking group of radical black feminists, was one of the most important organizations to develop out of the anti-racist and women's liberation movements of the 1960s and 70s. In this collection of essays and interviews edited by activist scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor, founding members of the organization and contemporary activists reflect on the legacy of its contributions to black feminism and its impact on today's struggles. Mm. So I read the book a few years ago, um, but I'd love to get back to it. Um, so that might be foreshadowing for future oh. uh, things to bring to the table. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I also, you know, uh, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liber- Liberation is, is a book that she read too. Um, and it's been in my to read pile for a while now. Um, so that's that's also something to maybe uh, get to as homework. Absolutely. Well, first of all, shout out to Haymarket Books. We love them around here. Mm. Uh, but also, yeah, uh, that's my homework too. The Particularly the uh, Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation book. I actually haven't read it. Um, it's been on my list for for quite a while now. It, I think it what it came out back in 2016. Yeah, a second edition actually is recently just came out too. Look so there's an update. That. All right. I don't know what all the updates are, but there's a second edition. I didn't know that either. So look, we're we're all learning things together here, right? But I, so I think there's so much about that and what was happening in 2016 that's still relevant today, right? And so the this description, I, I wanted to read it. It's from the 2016 version. I again didn't know that there was a there's an update, but so the description of the book is. Uh, this the eruption of mass protests in the wake of the police murders of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York City have challenged the impunity with which officers of the law carry out violence against black people and punctured the illusion of a post-racial America. The Black Lives Matter movement has awakened a new generation of activists. In this stirring and insightful analysis, activist and scholar Kianga Yamada Taylor surveys the historical and contemporary ravages of racism and persist, persistence, excuse me, of structural inequity, inequality, excuse me, such as mass incarceration and black unemployment. In this context, she argues that this new struggle against police violence holds the potential to reignite a broader push for black liberation. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of incredible stuff. There's got to be a lot of incredible stuff in this book. So yeah, uh, yeah that's my homework is to definitely get this book finally and get it read for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so maybe some other foreshadowing. Hey, hey. Something to bring to the table. <laughs> I uh, love it. Yeah. All right. So Damien, you're up next time. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? I am. Yes, sir. All right. So for our next episode, I'm bringing a piece that was featured in The New Yorker back in June. Uh, so just a few months old here uh, by Benjamin Wallace Wells, who's a contributor to the New Yorker, and I think he writes for some other Rolling Stone and some other some other places and publications. Uh, the piece is called "How a Conservative Activist Invented the Conflict Over Critical Race Theory," and you know, to be fully transparent, I haven't read any of it yet, but uh, 
I was intrigued by it because of what I do know about it is that it's a response to Christopher Rufo. And if that name sounds familiar, we actually talked about uh, Mr. Rufo uh, when we had our previous episode. I think it was the first time we actually talked about in depth critical race theory um, Mm -hmm. on the show, maybe a few months ago now at this point. Right. And so in this piece, uh, Benjamin Wallace Wells walks us through some of Christopher Rufo's uh, misguided efforts to attack critical race theory. And, uh, and he also does some work to share some of the conversations he has with critical race theory scholars. Like he actually talks to Kimberly Crenshaw uh, about their response to, to all of this. And so I think it's going to be another way for us to you know, keep talking positively about critical race theory, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and the importance of it. And who knows, maybe we'll bring some other things uh, to the conversation. And, uh, you know, critical race theory continues to be in the news uh, yeah. uh, every other day, right? So uh, I know this maybe came out back in June, and, and but I'm sure there's lots of sort of uh, present day things we can talk about with this. So I'm looking forward to uh, fully reading the article and talking about it with you next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be... Um, you know, one of the newest fronts on uh, the culture war by yeah. the right. Uh-huh. So um, it is a constant bugaboo. Yes. Um, all right. Well, we want to thank you today for joining us uh, and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do here, but, you know, you might have forgotten. Uh, <laughs> please follow, leave a rating and a review, share our podcast with the people in your life. Follow us on social media, sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we got going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week. 